Okay, so um, I'd like to start off by thanking you um, for joining us today. And um, basically, I just want to start off by giving the audience a little bit of a background on you. So why don't you start with letting us know like where you came from, what you've been up to, and how you got to where you are right now. Yeah, for sure. I'm from the Bay Area originally, suburb of San Francisco, and I started my career in corporate retail at the Gap headquarters. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I did a rotational program there where for about a year, I rotated between the key functions within retail, merchandising, inventory management, production, supply chain. Um, and that was an amazing foundation in business fundamentals. Mm -hmm. I personally like that I started at a bigger company and have progressively gone to smaller and smaller organizations since um, because it's, it's, I think made me a better entrepreneur and leader seeing all kinds of different organizations. Uh, so uh, I spent a couple of years in retail, uh, in beauty also in brand management at Bear Essentials at L'Oreal. And then I made the jump over to tech where I went to a Sequoia backed startup called Flight. Um, and then after that, you know, went to an even smaller organization working directly with Seth Godin. Mm -hmm. So in 2014, I packed up my bags in San Francisco, into you know six suitcases, flew across the country, moved to New York in the dead of winter, and started a new role with Seth Godin as special projects lead. Mm -hmm. And one of my first projects working with him was building a Udemy course for him. So I dove into the world of online education, which at that time was dominated by video-driven on-demand evergreen courses. And as I started researching MOOCs, as they're called massive open online courses, I realized that the completion rate was super low, three to 7%. So a bunch of people sign up, yeah. excited and enthusiastic to, to learn. And then a tiny percentage of people actually stay long enough to finish. Mm -hmm. I myself have signed up for courses on Udemy and Skillshare. Uh, you know, I think I have a, a hand lettering <laughs> calligraphy course somewhere and a classical music course where I watched half a lecture, said I would go back. It's been five years, haven't touched it since. So that really prompted us to think about, you know, was there a better way? Was mm -hmm. this the peak of online education or was there a way to increase engagement, to increase completion rates, to make online learning a more community-driven process? Mm -hmm. So this really kicked off a bunch of ideas that eventually led to the Alt-MBA. Mm -hmm. So I spent three years building up the Alt-MBA, which kicked off this entire category of cohort-based courses mm -hmm. where it's groups of people meeting online, learning together with set start and end dates. So a course might be three days, it might be uh, three weeks, a month, but it's essentially a, a cohort of like-minded people learning together in a much more hands-on active way. Mm -hmm. So instead of watching videos about sales, for example, if you're taking a cohort-based course on sales, you're practicing your pitch. You're getting feedback on which parts resonated with people, which parts are weaker, you're iterating on it and then pitching again or you're you know, sending out actual um, emails, just prospects, uh, or you're role-playing, right? So it's a lot more hands-on and it's a lot more about practice and discussion and iteration, which is really how, how we all learn best. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I, I co-founded the Alt-MBA, built that up, grew the alumni community. Um, and, and at a certain point, another question popped to mind, which was, was the Alt-MBA a singular anomaly, that there was something about what was in the water or in the air that allowed the Alt-MBA to work, or 
could we replicate this model in other verticals, other functions, with other topics, with other creators and experts? So I spent the next two years working directly with creators uh, mm -hmm. as a consultant to help them build up their courses, find product market fit, and build their own mini alt MBAs, if you will. Mm -hmm. I worked with Professor Galloway at Section 4 with the co-founders of Morning Brew, Alex and Austin, uh, with William Urey, the negotiations expert from Harvard, who worked with President Carter, with David Perel and Tiago Forte, who are both making in the millions per year um, as non-traditional teachers who are sharing their knowledge online. Um, and this proved out that, yes, the cohort-based model does work, and it works with other people, and it works with other topics, um, which brings me to what I'm working on now, Maven. So last yeah. fall, I reconnected with a high school friend of mine, Gagan Biani, who co-founded Udemy. And Gagan had reached out because he was starting to, to tinker around with this idea of, of cohort-based courses and was noticing that they were gaining steam. And, and Gagan emailed me one day in the summer and said, everyone I talk to about cohort-based courses has mentioned you. And I told them, yes, yes, I already know Wes. I'm just going to reach out to her directly. Uh, and, and, and he did, and we, we reconnected and started kicking around some ideas um, and eventually decided to start Maven together. So uh, it's been about, I don't know how many months, eight months, nine months or so. Mm -hmm. um, we've reached over a million dollars in course sales in GMV. We're pre-product, so we haven't even launched our software yet, but we really hit the ground running, bringing on instructors, sharing our knowledge on how to build courses, um, building out the team. So, um, so that's, that's a bit about what I'm working on today. That that's incredible. Honestly, just listening. I've looked through your LinkedIn. I've looked through all your posts, but hearing it from you as well, it's like, it's just so inspirational. And like, I just love the drive, the ambition that you just bring forth. Um, so like looking back, uh, I say looking back, like it's the end, it's really not the end for you. Everyone can tell, but um, looking at your journey so far, what would you say are like the highest highs and the lowest lows that you've had to face on a personal level as well as on a business side as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think the highs and lows happen on a daily or weekly basis. So, you know, not even like looking over the arc of, of the last 15 years or so, but just even on, on the, in the last week, mm -hmm. um, I feel like, like one of the cornerstones of of being a founder is the ups and downs mm -hmm. of, of, you know, this is great. I think this is an awesome idea and this sucks. This is probably not going to work too. Oh yeah, this is totally working. What are we worried about too? We have so much to worry about. So it's that, you know, those, those fluctuations and the ups and downs. I think one thing that helps me stay grounded is reminding myself that things are probably okay. Mm -hmm. I am a worrier. Yeah. I have a tendency to be anxious. Um, it's one of my strengths, I think, honestly, uh, I think, I think strengths are often, um, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. So one of my strengths is that I look ahead and I see all the different ways that a situation could play out. Mm -hmm. So this is happening here, are 20 different potential ways that this could play out here, are all the risks, here's what we can do to de-risk. Yeah. Um, and that allows me to make pretty good decisions, uh, and with, with conviction, but the flip side of that, when it's when it's not applied appropriately, is that um, I'm I'm anxious or I worry about well, what if this happens or what if that happens? And what's helpful for me is taking a step back and reminding myself that it's probably fine. 
it'll probably turn out okay. Mm -hmm. And that self-management, that yeah. self, um, that, that, you know, understanding my own psyche and my own tendencies and managing my own emotions, that's been incredibly helpful for smoothing out a lot of those, those ups and down variances that happen, uh, that happen on a weekly basis and will always continue to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's actually really insightful, especially like being able to sense check yourself. And like, I think, yeah, yeah. that's definitely something we can all do, I think. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that comes with also the experience that you've had. So like, um, what would you say to like people starting their journey? And, you know, there's a lot of um, expectations when, that come with being an entrepreneur and like making that first transition into an entrepreneurial journey. So what, what kind of advice would you say to be able to um, step out and kind of realize that this is part of the journey that you need to kind of detach yourself in a way um, at the beginning stages where it's also fresh and it's so, so raw and you, you're so engaged and you're so like, you know, connected to your journey, to your entrepreneurship, to your startup, to your product that you need to learn to take a step back. Yeah, one, one piece of advice I have for entrepreneurs who are just starting out is to pick something where you have an unfair advantage. Mm -hmm. The journey and building something is hard enough as it is that you really want to pick an area where you are uniquely suited mm -hmm. and you have an unfair advantage. Um, if someone random off the street had the same chances of succeeding doing the thing that you're doing as, as you do, I think you're probably working on the wrong thing. So mm -hmm. I think picking which battles you want to fight is half the battle. Um, so that's something that I think a lot about when I, when I evaluate opportunities, um, not just uh, recently with, with startups, but even when I was working in-house uh, mm -hmm. as a team member you know, of corporations, of startups, et cetera, um, I thought about what am I great at? Mm -hmm. What do I like doing? And what does the market need? And the overlap of those three things, finding that that Venn diagram overlap, that sweet spot, mm -hmm. is a good way to set your up, set yourself up for success. So that's that's one. It's just picking the right opportunity to work on that fits you and, and what you're uniquely able to bring. Mm -hmm. um, I think the second is that there are never-ending problems to solve when you're mm -hmm. when you're at a startup. Yeah, that actually applies when you're working at a company too. Honestly, mm -hmm. um, there's you know, everything should have been done yesterday and, and, you know, uh, everything could be done faster. There's always something coming up next. Yeah, um, and that just never ends. It's like, it's like this onslaught of like just a, a constant stream. Mm -hmm. And, um, I remember reading this great article a while ago about how life is not like chess. It's like Tetris. Oh gosh. <laughs> chess assumes that you have time to make these strategic moves that all the the items on the board are controlled for, that you make a move, then the other side makes a move, you know, and it's back and forth. Whereas Tetris is like, those blocks are coming. Like whether you're doing something or not, they are constantly coming. Um, and that, that dynamic um, really matters. Acknowledging that things are coming, whether you, you know, are, are actively deciding or not. Uh, mm -hmm. If you don't decide a decision is being made for you, basically. Um, I think acknowledging those dynamics are super important and realizing that uh, you have a finite amount of energy. You have a finite amount of 
um, decision making uh, brain power, mm-hmm. and yeah. you want to allocate that well. And and this kind of goes back to the first point of picking something where you have an unfair advantage. You know, the second the second piece of advice is about um, picking your battles on a on a daily basis of what problems should you be solving. Mm-hmm. And and there's too many problems for you to be able to solve everything all at once. And being able to prioritize that. Mm-hmm. Um, one framework I like thinking about is the frequency and the magnitude of the problem. Right. The frequency is how often does this happen with customers? Mm-hmm. The magnitude is every time it happens, how bad is it? Is it a minor annoyance or is it catastrophic world ending, right? So using that framework has helped me prioritize what are the things that we should solve? Mm-hmm. What are the things that are not ideal right now right. that we will eventually solve, but we're going to let that sit for now. <laughs> that, yeah, that's great. Wow. Um, so going back to your first point, when did you realize you had an unfair advantage and what was that unfair advantage that you realized at the time? Mm, that's a good question. I think my first, my first encounter with entrepreneurship was in high school mm-hmm. when I started a nonprofit organization called Packs of Love. Yes. <laughs> and I, I donated backpacks and school supplies to underprivileged kids. It's still um, on your LinkedIn. <laughs> I love yes, that. Right. Yep. And um, before that, I had never started anything or planned anything bigger than, than a birthday party. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really dove into deep end because uh, basically I had promised uh, a couple shelters and, uh, and foster, foster home organizations that I would donate these school supplies to them. And then the inspiration there was that I, uh, you know, had a lot of school supplies, a lot of Hello Kitty, Lisa Frank, notebooks, pencils, um, and I love stationery. And, mm-hmm. and uh, the beginning of the school year for me always felt like this new start. Oh, yeah. I don't know about you, but it was always like this year, I'm going to be a new person, right? Like I'm going to be my best <laughs> self. Like this is a yeah. chance to reinvent myself. And mm-hmm. I think that that um, feeling of inspiration is so um so valuable, so important for, for kids going back to school. Um, and I, I wanted other kids to be able to feel that and to have the school supplies that they needed to, to start fresh and to start with their best foot forward. Um, so that was the idea for Packs of Love. Um, of course, once I had the idea, I soon realized that turning it into a reality was a lot harder than I had imagined and thus kicked off a five-year journey of knocking on doors, literally, at uh, different, different stores, locally, Walmart, Target, um, Long's Drugs, Walgreens, basically asking to talk to store managers, asking them to donate, mm-hmm. writing um, letter upon letter to different stationery companies, Jansport, you know, the backpack company, Pentel, the pen company. I know all the stationery companies uh, and, and writing them letters to say, hey, can you donate? And having a lot of doors slammed in my face, a lot of people hanging up, uh, yeah. a lot of... Uh, a lot of people saying, you know, you're, you're just a kid who wants free stuff. You just want free notebooks. Right. And I was like, no, I swear. Uh, and, and, um, the turning point for that was when I thought, okay, you know, the first year I end up, I end up having to buy the backpacks and school supplies myself okay, because no one donated. And I had already promised yeah. that I would, I would be delivering these school supplies. So I used up money that I'd saved, bought it all myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the great thing that happened was I thought, well, what if I called up in a local newspaper and had them cover the story and used the coverage 
which ended up being on the front page of the local newspaper uh, as social proof. Yeah. Next time that I went around to secure donations and, and to raise money. So that's exactly what happened. I brought this, you know, this newspaper article, went around to all the same stores and yeah. said, hey, you know, this showed up in the news. I'm happy to mention you as, you know, this local manager, the store supports their community. Um, and I got donations from, from all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then gradually, year by year, um, step by step, kept leveraging what I had into something slightly bigger, into something slightly bigger, into something slightly bigger. Mm-hmm. And that process of gradually taking what you have and growing that leverage mm-hmm. um, is something that I thought back then that, you know, it's my first time around. That's why it's, it's working like this. Yeah. But in the future, you know, when I know what I'm doing or, or, or other people who know what they're doing, they don't do it this way. Um, but now years and years later, um, working on Maven, it's still, it's still like that. It's still taking a nub of something turning it into something a little bigger, using that to, to trade up into something bigger and then slowly growing that snowball. Mm-hmm. So I think that skill of um, thinking where where is the point of leverage that I have? How can I get creative about working with what I have and turning it into something a little bit bigger and then a little bit bigger? Um, that's That was one of the, the unfair advantages that, that I would say that I had um, and that I've applied throughout every step of my career. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. So what would you say between going from like very, I would say largely marketing focused expertise to then moving into tech and then cohort based learning? What was that decision like for you? And what was it based on? It wasn't really a a hard decision or hard line. Mm-hmm. It was more gradual and more serendipitous. I've made a lot of my career decisions by thinking about what are problems that I'm excited to solve that mm-hmm. I feel like I'm uniquely so- suited to solve. Right. And when it came to starting the Alt-MBA, um, the same skill set of what is something that we can launch quickly that's going to be great for a specific audience mm-hmm. so that we can test if there's something here worth exploring and then growing it, growing it, growing it, that that was how the Alt-MBA developed. So when Seth and I first started it, we, we initially started as a, a one-time project. Right. Seth is known for launching a bunch of projects over 30 years, and this started off as just another one of those projects. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until we launched the first cohort when we realized that there was something here, that, yeah. that students were instantly connecting, that they were getting more out of it than we expected, that mm-hmm. they were... Um, volunteering to connect with each other in ways that we didn't even expect and that we wanted to build this into a standalone institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the decision was more, um, this is something that's interesting. I'm curious about it right. and, and I want to figure it out. Mm-hmm. For me, the, the part about wanting to figure it out is a very big part of the experience. If I think about it and I already know how to do it, yeah. that's not as interesting. Mm-hmm. That's then it's just like, well, I, I already feel like I've, I've untangled. Yeah, you've done right? it. it's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's when it's a non-obvious solution. It's a problem with a non-obvious solution where um, that really hooks me in and makes me want to untangle and, and figure, figure out how do we approach this? Mm. Okay. So I, so I guess that's one of your motivators when it comes to work and it, one of your 
work attitude what are other attitudes you have towards your work and that's from you know right the beginning from packs of love to then going into marketing and now you know working on learning tech essentially and then also in your mentoring work what are some attitudes that are quite intrinsic to you one is rigorous thinking mm -hmm. And I define rigorous thinking as having a systematic approach to making decisions and evaluating your options, thinking about second order effects. So you understand the full system of, of what's happening and can make a, a good decision with the information that you have. Mm -hmm. The opposite of rigorous thinking is what I call lazy thinking. Yeah. Lazy thinking is uh, inspired by this South Park episode. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's basically, you know, one of the characters has an, a business idea and they, they give a slideshow presentation and then they say, step one uh, is the idea. Mm -hmm. Step two, question mark. Step three, profit. <laughs> and, and I feel like a lot, of, a lot of us, you know, sometimes get really excited about our ideas and, mm -hmm. and we kind of, you know, we go straight from, well, here's this idea to, to, you know, skipping past the middle part of how does it actually work to the end of, you know, and then we have thousands of downloads and then it goes viral. And then, you know, hundreds of people sign up and then it grows, you know, and, and that middle question mark of, well, how are you actually driving that growth? Or how are you actually getting people to sign up? How are you getting people to actually want to do the thing that you're asking them to do, whether it's a download to subscribe, to buy, to sign up? That's the part that is the hard part. Mm -hmm. So rigorous thinking means acknowledging that that's a hard part and having a systematic approach of, of uh, really tackling that. So mm -hmm. that's something that really inspires me. I think rigorous thinking is so important. I love hiring people who are rigorous thinkers. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a, a team culture, a company culture that we, uh, a company value that we have at Maven now mm -hmm. um, is this idea of rigorous thinking. And what's so exciting about rigorous thinking is it gives you the ability um, kind of ironically or surprisingly to move faster and to take more experiments, uh, to take more bets and make, do more experiments. Mm -hmm. So you might think that, oh, well, rigorous thinking, like that seems like that seems slow or it seems you have to think a lot, but doing that upfront, a little bit of that upfront thinking mm -hmm. pays so much in dividends later on in that it allows you to pick the right experiments to, to try. Mm -hmm. uh, it allows you to move faster with more confidence mm -hmm. to structure experiments in a way that, that you have a, a short, small feedback loop. So you can learn a lot without uh, over baking, whatever it is that you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, so so the rigorous thinking piece, plus the quick iterations, the experimentation, um, staying connected to what the market is telling you, um, mm -hmm. that's all, all very um, exciting and very inspirational for me. Okay. Wow. You just sound so busy. Like I can imagine like what it's like being inside your mind right now. And you've got all of these really cool like parts that you're like, yeah, this is working. That's working. Got to do this. So how do you learn to switch off? How do you take time off? How do you take Wes time? How does that work? How does that fit into your schedule? That's definitely a work in progress. So <laughs> luckily, luckily I love my work. I do work a lot. So I read a Mindy Kaling quote, Right. recently where, where she talked about how she doesn't know anyone who's successful, who, who isn't considered a workaholic yeah. by most people's definitions. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, that's very insightful, very wise. Um, yeah. And I feel very fortunate that I love thinking about my work and yeah. um, it keeps me on my toes. It's very intellectually stimulating. 
So it's not something where it feels draining. I think if it felt draining, the balance piece would be more important. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's more about, am I, am I feeling energized? Am I mm-hmm. feeling, um, am I feeling good about, you know, where I am, uh, what I'm working on. Um, and if the answer is yes, it's less important, you know, how many of those hours are working versus, versus unwinding time. Right. Um, I will say that there's been a couple things that I've done recently that have been great for, um, keeping my energy level up. Right. So one thing recently that I started doing is, um, doing phone calls instead of zoom calls if possible. Okay. So, uh, my co-founders and I, Goggin, Shreyans and I, um, we actually don't see each other on zoom, except when we're on calls with, with, um, people outside the company. Right. Because if it's just the three of us, we're always talking on phone calls mm-hmm. and on our calls, go- uh, Shreyans is gardening. Okay. I'm pacing, um, <laughs> you know, up and down my street or watering my plants. Mm-hmm. Goggin is also walking around. So that's been great for, um, having a change of pace. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, you know, X number of hours, you're just sitting, staring in front of the screen. Yeah. Um, that's been awesome. The other is having hobbies that are not screen related. Right. So if one of my hobbies, let's say were um, learning Photoshop, like that would be more screen time. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for hobbies that, that were offline IRL mm-hmm. and um, the past couple of years, I've been really obsessed with plants. Okay. So now I have 75 or more plants. You can see a couple of them yeah. behind me. Yeah. Um, and, and it's amazing um, having a hobby that's tactile. Mm-hmm. where I'm, I'm checking the leaves for insects. I'm checking, you know, the weight of my plants to see if, if they need more water, if, if they're lighter, they need, you know, they usually need water if they're dried out. Um, uh, I'm, I'm propagating, I'm taking cuttings, I'm working with the soil, you know, I'm mm-hmm. washing dirt from out of my fingernails. Yeah. Um, so, so having a hobby that's not screen related mm-hmm. has been great for creating some separation between work screen time, plus, you know, getting outside walking and, um, and having a hobby that's, that's clearly not work-related. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, definitely agree with the plant thing. I think everyone's just gone in into gardening, especially here. My parents are crazy about it. I'm not there yet, but they're literally talking about, at, like, at the dinner table, they'll be sat there talking about, oh, yeah, we need to get more hydrangeas. I'm like, what is a hydrangea? I love that. That's amazing. We call it, we call it the flora, um, the flora committee when we have dinner, because like, it just turns into a discussion about what plans we're getting with the garden. Um, yeah, moving on from that. (laughs) (laughs) So I read an article recently, um, about how you were describing striking a balance between marketing and for long-term equity versus short-term wins how would you describe the balances especially for first-time founders where it is very necessary to have um you know very imminent wins at the beginning to get your cred up as you said like you needed that newspaper at the beginning to give you a little bit of credibility and you know show to the world what you're up to and what who you are and what you're doing um at the beginning of your journey, how would you advise founders to balance that um, attitude towards their marketing? Yeah, I have a framework called the brand versus performance marketing spectrum. Mm-hmm. And this it's this idea that with performance marketing and brand marketing, there's a trade-off. So with performance marketing, you're optimizing for short-term wins, right? but there is a potential risk to your long-term brand equity. 
Um, and that's, if people lean too far on the performance side, you can be perceived as spammy mm-hmm. uh, and, and overly aggressive. And then if we swing the pendulum all the way to the other extreme, there's, there's brand marketing. And brand marketing is about building up your, your long-term brand and, um, and working on your branding uh, and your reputation. But if you only do that, then you potentially risk um, too long of a payback cycle with mm-hmm. your marketing efforts. So brand marketing includes um, influencer marketing, billboards, uh, pop-up stores, great design. These are all aspects of brand marketing that, that take longer for the return to pay back. It's not like someone is, you know, you put out a billboard and people automatically start to buy versus, uh, versus a pay-per-click ad, for example, yeah. or Facebook ad. So there's, there's an inherent tension in, in um, brand performance marketing, but most founders have to do both. Mm-hmm. And you have to create strategies and tactics that allow you to, um, to balance those two in the same, um, in the same activity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, going back to that Pax Evolve example, it's funny because we did the same tactic and strategy um, at the Alt MBA and even now at Maven. So mm-hmm. at the Alt MBA, early on, we had a lot of applications from freelancers and smaller business owners. Right. And we wanted to attract some bigger brands to show credibility for, for the Alt MBA. And uh, what I ended up doing was, um, was scraping um, Seth's uh, list of subscribers, email subscribers, and sorting alphabetically by domain name mm-hmm. and looking at where are the companies that have the most um, subscribers so right. uh, of Seth's block. So Nike, Whole Foods, General Mills, uh, Kickstarter, Lululemon, these were some brands that came up. And that makes sense. These are, you know, forward thinking, modern uh, brands that are kind of challenging their industries. So I ended up emailing a couple people from, from each of those companies and said, um, hey, we're doing this new educational online program. We'd love to give you a scholarship seat. Okay. So that attracted uh, people from brands that we, we wanted to be affiliated with. Mm-hmm. And then I turned each of these students slash alumni into case studies when they graduated. So those case studies and testimonials are still on the Alt MBA website today, five or six years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so that really kicked us off on being able to put um, a section on our website that said students are from Kickstarter, Lululemon, uh, General Mills, you know, Microsoft, et cetera, mm-hmm. which then attracted more people. So yeah. part of that idea of starting with something and then making it bigger, making it bigger, making it bigger, that then started this really virtuous cycle of, of attracting the, the right kind of student. And then with Maven, um, our first instructors were, um, were some of our investors. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, going even a step before that, we chose and prioritized investors who we wanted to teach courses on our platform. Right. Yeah. So per, you know, starting with something small, um, we, we were strategic about prioritizing uh, these investors and then they ended up teaching courses. So Legion, uh, who, who coined the term passion economy, for example, she was an a investor at Andrew Snorowitz and now runs her own firm. Lenny Rachitsky, who was an early product manager at Airbnb, who makes a living writing Substack now. He's kind of the Substack um, poster child. Uh, Sahil Lavingia, CEO of Gumroad. Mm-hmm. Um, so these all became our, our investors and then eventually taught courses, which attracted more 
instructors who are like, oh, well, Lee and Solihull are teaching courses. Um, you know, I want to be a part of this. So that's a great example of, of a strategy that is both um, short term in that there's an immediate result, but mm -hmm. long term in that um, it builds our brand long term. You know, we didn't we didn't take a shortcut in a way that that was detrimental to the brand. We did both. We did both the brand side and the performance side. So as as um, as someone who's building anything new, really thinking about balancing these two sides and and challenging yourself to not take the shortcut of oh well, well you know if I'm doing something that's traditionally performance, it, mm -hmm. it's okay to be spammy. Or if I'm doing something that's traditionally brand focused, it's okay to not measure results. That's, that doesn't really fly. You really need to have both. So you, you mentioned the two intersections that it kind of meets for you to have like a strategic marketing, um, like a, a successful marketing strategy. What are some examples that you can give that founders can action when they don't have deep pockets? So at the beginning of the journey, when they're still doing their nine to five and, you know, this is a part-time gig or, you know, it's, um, they do it on the weekends or what, so um, how, how can you get those three <laughs> Venn diagrams to link up and what do you find in the middle? I think looking inwards and reflecting on what are things that, that people already ask you about. What are skills that you already have? What are, you know, questions that, that you get asked all the time that, that you can help with? Um, those are all areas that you can start with that allow you to um, bloom where planted. That's one of my favorite quotes is bloom where planted. I think so often we want to choose greener pastures. And we, want, we want some other situation to happen before we're able to do something. Um, but no one is going to just magically give you a different situation. You yeah. really have to work with what you have. Yeah. So if you can't get to where you want to go in one leap, then make it 10 smaller leaps, right? Mm -hmm. But but get some motion, get some momentum going. Right. And a lot of times that means working with the assets and constraints that you already have. Right. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that anyone can make, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, is, um, is miscalculating your assets and constraints. Your ass. What I mean by that is your assets are things that you have to leverage. That could be your network. It could be your um, savviness. It can be your um, your charisma. It could be your track record. Right. It could be your industry experience. It could be your audience size. It could be your deep relationships. It can be it can be a bunch of different things. These are all assets that you can leverage, and then your constraints are the guardrails that you're working within. Mm -hmm. The difference between a problem and a constraint is that a problem is something that you try to solve and try to fix. A constraint is something that you work with it. Mm -hmm. So if your constraint is that you have a nine to five job, right. um, then that's something that you work with it. So think of something that you can do outside of that nine to five. Right. If the nine to five is a problem to solve, then, then it's like, okay, well, maybe I quit my nine to five, right? Yeah. Versus like, I am working within the constraints that I have to start something that you are able to do with a nine to five job. Mm -hmm. So acknowledging what are my assets? What are my constraints? What can I do within that? Mm -hmm. That's the, the basic groundwork of creating any strategy, whether it's a marketing strategy, a career decision strategy, um, a product strategy with what do I want to start to build, really taking stock of what you are working with mm -hmm. and how, how you can 
uh, start there and then think of where you want to go and then bridge that gap slowly but surely. Right, right. Okay. So we spoke a lot about your work. Um, let's talk about, a little bit about your mentorship. When did that start? And you, I see you've been mentoring all, all like since 2000, since right after Alt MBA or am I mistaken um, before that as well? And you post a lot of blog posts. There's so much advice out there. How, how did you fit that in? And when was the decision to, you know, make your knowledge public? I started writing my blog in 2010. Okay. And the, <clears throat> the decision there was I had a lot of spiky points of view yeah. that I wanted to share mm-hmm. and, uh, and that I thought other people would benefit from hearing and that would spark interesting conversations. Um, and, and writing online seemed like a great way to document what I was thinking and invite that, that uh, dialogue to happen. So over the years, my blog has, has evolved and taken on different forms, but it's one of the most rewarding investments that I've made in my career. Um, I've met so many interesting people through my writing, through people reading something and reaching out and, and uh, either agreeing with it or disagreeing with it. Doesn't matter. It starts, uh, it starts a relationship. Um, and it's been a great way to showcase thinking that um, sometimes doesn't necessarily naturally come up uh, in day-to-day work. Yeah. So, you know, when you're talking to a coworker, um, they, they don't necessarily have time to, to, you know, dive into a rabbit hole per se. Um, but if you write up something and you share your rationale, you make the business case for it, you, you share your thought process around it and you're able to share it with them and share Mm -hmm. with the world, people can read it on their own time. Mm -hmm. They can really, um, it gives you the time to flesh out ideas and to share, um, the rigor behind your thinking. Mm-hmm. in a way that a fast conversation isn't always conducive to. Yeah. And, and the ironic funny thing is that there have been times when I've mentioned things in conversation with, with my team or with my, um, with my colleagues where they were like, yeah, yeah, Wes, you know, sure. And then I, and then I sent them this article that I had written about it, an essay, and they yeah. read it. And they're like, that totally makes sense. Like, I see what you're saying now. I get it, right? So it's funny that even though it's people that I know and work with, Um, that those, those assets, the, the track record, the thinking over so many years, the essays, they still serve a purpose of helping to explain my ideas in high fidelity in, in a really highly, highly leveraged way. So I, I really encourage, um, people to write online, to share their spiky points of view. Um, and, uh, and, um, going back to your question about mentorship, uh, I've been such a, a recipient of great advice from others um, that I don't necessarily think of mentors as as people that are um, you know this one lifelong person. I think a lot of times we think of mentors as like Yoda Gandalf, and yeah. Yoda stays with you for your Gandalf. Exactly. I think modern mentors are more situational, mm-hmm. and if you are open to the idea of a situational mentor, you open yourself up to so many more opportunities for connection. Because mm-hmm. what you're not doing is demanding that that person commit to you forever yeah. to help you, you know, um, on a weekly basis, but rather that you will go to that person when things come up, when, yeah. when their advice, you know, is suitable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a lot of um, situational mentors and I am a situational mentor to, to a lot of people. And that, mm-hmm. that relationship being bi-directional makes it really fruitful too. 
Wow. Yeah. I'm sure lots of people are going to try and reach out after this now. <laughs> sure. Yes. I yeah, hope they definitely. do. I think I might be one of them, but we'll see. <laughs> Love that. Hit um, me up. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so I think that this conversation has been incredibly um, valuable. And I think a lot of people will be able to draw from these conversations. Do you have any um, parting remarks for uh budding founders that we're speaking to at the moment, our millennial Gen Z founders that are embarking on the journey of entrepreneurship. Yeah, one of one of my favorite frameworks is turning bugs into features. Okay. Uh, I think for me, there are so many times where I look at my background or I look at my personality and I wish I were different. You know, I'll mm -hmm. look at other people, peers, colleagues, uh, competitors and think, you know, if only I were more like them. Mm -hmm. uh, I could be so much further. If, I, if only I weren't an introvert or if only this came easier to me. And turn, the idea of turning bugs into features has been powerful for me because it's the idea that whatever you think is uh, a pitfall or a disadvantage or downside about yourself, what if you turn that into your strength mm -hmm. and into your, your uh, differentiating um, advantage? Yeah. So, you know, I'm an introvert. And for a long time, I, I wish I was an extrovert. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I lamented about how much easier things would be if, if I were that. Um, but in turning that from a bug into a feature, I realized that I'm really good at what I do because I am an introvert. And mm -hmm. that I bring a different perspective to leadership, to entrepreneurship, to connecting with my teams, to sales. I still do all those things. And a lot of people don't even think I'm an introvert unless I tell them that. Um, but it's given me... Uh, a different lens to connect with people. Mm -hmm. um, and so instead of um, glossing over certain things about yourself, wishing you were in that way, um, turn whatever it is, you know, that you're self-conscious about uh, into, into a feature uh, mm -hmm. and do that with your product too. You know, if your product, if you think, oh, our stuff is too simple, you know, we don't have enough features, play up the simplicity. That's great. There are people who are looking for simplicity. Mm -hmm. And if you're on the other end, you know, your product is really complicated. Um, you know, don't say like, oh, it's too heavyweight. It's, you know, people don't know what to do. Play up the fact that it's robust, that it's thorough, that it's, you know, enterprise grade. There are a lot of people who want customization and, and detail. Um, so whatever situation you're in, bloom where planted, turn bugs into features, work with what you have. Um, mm -hmm. I think, I think uh, everything that you need, you already have. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Ah, that's so uplifting as well. So I'm, I'm glad we ended on that note. So Wes, I'd like to thank you once again for speaking with me and sharing your insights. And I hope, I'm sure actually we'll hear loads um, about you and Maven in the days to come, in the weeks to come. Thanks, Shaya.